Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 43, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released God Who Fights For You, Last Year's Spiritual Grit, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast and even this current series we're in is directly based on... uh, the series we're in is called The Beeline Practices, and that's um, basically the last two-thirds of the Jesus-Centered Life book is called The Beeline Practices, and they're simply regular, everyday ways of living your life, but differently, so that your life ends up orbiting around Jesus closer and closer and closer. You're caught up in his gravity is a way of saying it, I think. And these are all little ways that you can kind of fire the little jets on your rocket ship to move you into a closer orbit around him. So that's the series we're in right now, the ninth episode in this Beeline Practices series. And I'm also the the uh, general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and just want to throw this out for you here at the end of Bible Month. I, I bet you didn't realize that um, October into November, into early November is is Bible Month. So we're right there at the end of this little trajectory to sort of elevate the importance of being in the Bible, uh, being kind of immersing yourself in truth. So if you have um, never picked up a Jesus-centered Bible, or if you're thinking about Christmas already, and you want to give someone a special gift that they'll maybe have with them the rest of their life, think about the Jesus-centered Bible. It was a two-year project that I led to create a Bible that had special features that no matter where you read in the Bible, it drew you sort of inexorably into the presence of Jesus. And along the way, we created um, some features that we had never seen before and and later found out that's because no one had ever tried those things before. So that includes in the Old Testament what we call the blue letters, where in the New Testament you see the words of Jesus in red. We had this idea, what if we highlighted in blue every place that points to Jesus in the Old Testament and then create a little blue explanation box that explains the connection. And so my friend Ken Castor and I spent many, many moons together going through the entire Old Testament looking for places that point to Jesus. And out of that came about 700 places that we identified, and we could have done many more, but the Bible is just getting to be too big with all these additions into it. So we capped it off at 700, and that means that almost any place you open to in the Old Testament you'll see a blue letter. So that's just one example of how we added new and unusual features into the Bible that helps you to come uh, deeper and more intimately into the presence of Jesus no matter where you're reading. So in honor of the end of Bible Month, please head on over to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. There'll be a link there for the Jesus-Centered Bible. Just look for Season 4, Episode 43. You can also just go to Group.com and search for the Jesus Center Bible, and you'll find different colors that uh, one might appeal to you. And again, think about that as a very special Christmas gift you could give this year. So in this episode, in this series of the Beeline Practices, we're exploring the practice of redefining love. 
So years ago, uh, a church plant called Vintage 21 was searching for ways to reintroduce Jesus to people who'd either left the church or were dissatisfied with their church experience. And they had a bunch of creative young people who had planted this church, and they had this really crazy creative idea. They found one of those campy old films about Jesus, one of those really cheesy old films about Jesus that was now in the public domain. So they could use scenes from it without any copyright issues. And they extracted four scenes from that film and added their own soundtrack, added their own dialogue to it. And they are hilarious. But their point was to try to deconstruct the Jesus that people thought they knew, because they were trying to reach people who were disaffected somehow um, by the church. And people that kind of thought they knew Jesus but really didn't know Jesus. They wanted to kind of destroy some of those uh, those facades that people had um, in the way that they described Jesus. So um, one of those four videos is my favorite. Uh, the scene that they took was Jesus encountering his disciples in the wilderness right before he goes to speak to a big crowd on the side of a mountain. So in this scene, we're going to listen to this, um, and we'll put a link to this on our podcast page as well, and you can see the whole video there. Uh, you, it really, it, it's uh, the visuals uh, are incredible for this, too, but you can really pick up what they're trying to get at by just listening to it, too. So the scene that, that, uh, that they took is, again, Jesus speaking to his disciples one by one, kind of going around the circle of them, saying something to each one of them. I don't know what he was saying in the original cheesy movie, but you'll hear what he says to each of them in, in this scene in just a second. And then after he does that, he takes them all to the hillside, and, and then he's speaking to the crowd. So their mission here, again, is to puncture the, these false versions of Jesus, particularly the way, the assumptions that we make about the way Jesus loves people. So let's listen to Vintage 21's little Jesus video here. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you, I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. All right, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Now they're moving to the hillside following Jesus, and he's about to speak to the crowd. And here he appears. all these sinners. All right, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. 
I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Vintage 21 Church. I call this the Scary Jesus video. So again, we'll put a link to this on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Season 4, episode 43, that's where you look for it. Um, it's priceless. It's so good. And I love, I, I just love the subversive way they went about this. They, are, they essentially targeted some popular ways that we think about Jesus, even unconsciously think about Jesus, and they skewer them. They they magnify them to their comic extreme, and um, I just love the way they're undermining some of our sort of lurking beliefs about Jesus, um, outing them in, in by making them target of comedy. So we sing the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, right? We've been singing it since we were little kids, but what do we really mean by that? How does Jesus love us? I think it's maybe our most crucial question. What is love, and how does Jesus express it? So my, my favorite quote of all time is from the great newspaper man, theologian, kind of an armchair theologian, and incredible author and speaker, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he said something that is so profound to me that I've managed to slip it into every book I've written in the last so, so 15 years or so. Here is the quote. If you meet the Jesus of the Gospels, you must redefine what love is, or you won't be able to stand him. If you meet the Jesus of the Gospels, you have to redefine what love is, or you won't be able to stand him. And what he means here is that if you really slow down and pay attention to what Jesus said and did, he destroys our common conceptions of what love is. And in fact, if you don't expand what you think love is, you won't be able to tolerate what Jesus does. You won't even translate what he's doing as love because a lot of what he does doesn't look like love to us. So one thing or the other has to give. Either our definition of love has to give or our pursuit of Jesus in an honest way has to give because you can't pursue Jesus in an honest way and continue to describe him as a nice guy. He wasn't a nice guy. He was interested in loving us. And that doesn't always mean nice, uh, as we'll explore a, a bit more in the episode today. So we've said in the last episode, and in many episodes of this podcast, that Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I'm not pointing to the way or pointing to the truth or pointing to sources of life. I am the source of these things. I embody the way, the truth, and the life. We could also say that he is the love. <laughs> He embodies what love is. He's the definition of love. What Jesus says and does helps create the boundaries around our definition of love um, if we are his disciple. So when we let Jesus define love, it really changes the way we relate to him, and it changes the way we relate to other people if we do that one thing, let him define what love is for us. So what is love really? Um, is it just simply warmth and affection and acceptance? I think this is a harder question than you might think. Um, if, you, if you pause to think about how do I define love, you might find it it's a bit harder to answer that question than you think. 
It's one of those, you know, I know it when I see it things. Well, the, the online uh, website, Soul Pancake, uh, decided to tackle this question, uh, and they brought in a huge spectrum of people, all uh, from little kids all the way up to uh, people who are 100 years old, and asked them that simple question, what is love? And then um, the first part of the video is a lot of stammering and confused looks and people that started to try to describe it, and then they realized, I don't know how to describe this, and a lot of stops and tar- starts. But then um, uh, about 45 seconds or so into the video, some of their answers start to get a little traction. So let's listen to a little portion of this video. Again, all they asked was, what is love? And then they asked people to simply respond to that. So let's listen to how they responded. It's a complicated thing. Well, one of the definitions is that condition or state where the happiness of another is essential to one's own. I think love is just a form of God. Well, if you're talking family-wise, it means everything. But if you're talking like, like marriage, I mean, you can be single. I mean, that's kind of what I'm gonna do. That, that's deep. Oh, you know, you're asking the wrong age group because the first thing I want to do is say love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. But I don't believe that at all because I feel like you say you're sorry a lot. Love to me is the greatest marketing campaign ever invented. Love for me is being 100% vulnerable and all the way in, you know. You can love yourself first. But once you learn how to love yourself, you can love anything in this world. Someone that loves you, loves you because you're you. Love means accepting people the way they are. It has to be a two-way street. It can't just be, you know, I'm accepting you, you you gotta accept me too. I think that it's, being able to do something for somebody else that maybe you wouldn't normally do or maybe you wouldn't want to do, but you do it anyway because it's something that they want to do. Even if you like hate it so much, you just would do anything because you want to be with them. Love is a powerful thing. It makes you uh, do the things you never thought you could do. And um, I think it just, it, it makes life worth living. Everything else becomes nothing, okay? All that matters is that that the whole two hearts, you know, to expand to that infinity. It means, in a funny way, freedom, because you're free to feel so many feelings so deeply. Love to me is something you do on a day-to-day basis. And so you can, you can hold affection and you can hold nostalgia, but I think love is active. I always say, I'd rather love someone than be in love with someone because being in love with someone implies that you can fall out of it. If you're really close to your family, I consider that love, right? So any other person, friend or family or love interest, if you see them as your family, then that's love. Love means to me a big old kiss on your mouth and you don't not against it at all. I'm married 55 years. Our job in life, the two of us, is to look after each other and see to it that we're our best selves, so to speak. So I try to help her be her best self, and she tries to help me, and um, to me, that's love. I hope to do that as long as I I can stay awake. All right, there you have it. A wide variety of answers about what love is, and 
one thing you'll notice, probably some of these definitions, you are nodding your head a little bit. Oh, yeah, that I kind of agree with that. And then some you're like shaking your head like, I don't think that's really love. It was interesting that early on, a couple of the women that you heard there were quoting a famous line from an old famous movie called Love Story, which uh, just sort of captured the country at the time. Love means never having to say you're sorry. That was actually the tagline for the film. And uh, it's the most insidious lie. <laughs> I, you know, a whole generation of people grew up, uh, you know, feeling shame because they had to say sorry to the person that they loved. Uh, the second woman kind of corrected herself a little bit and said, yeah, I actually don't believe that. But you can see how subjective all this is, that we're, we're just basically creating meaning and attaching it to that question. And what we want to do, instead of creating our own meaning, assigning whatever we think this whole thing love means, uh, instead of doing that, and we stop ourselves. <laughs> we don't extend that same flabby, fuzzy boundary to the way we see and expect Jesus to love. We, we come to Jesus and, and say humbly like little children, you show us what love is. Whatever you say and do, we'll open our arms in vulnerability and accept that that is what love really looks like. And when we do that, we blow the boundaries off of our normal definitions of love. He way broadens what love really means. So one of the first things Jesus does, actually, in his public ministry is redefine what love means. So let's take a look at that. It's in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43 in my Jesus-centered Bible. The heading over this is, it says, teaching about love for enemies. It could have just said teaching about love, because it's not just love for enemies he's talking about. Jesus is trying to describe the nature of the kind of love that he lives and gives. You've heard it said that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you any different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, it's that last line, you're to be perfect even as your Father is perfect. I think we have greatly misunderstood what Jesus was trying to say there, and you can catch from the context here what he's really trying to pinpoint. He's trying to say the, the kind of love that you express and embrace is to be the same kind of love that I do and that your, my Father does. We want you to live and give the same kind of love that we do. So backing up to the start of this in verse 43, Jesus does something that he does often in Matthew 5 and 6. He says, you have heard blank, you've heard one thing, but I say there's something different than that. So he's blowing out of the water their commonly accepted standards for a wide variety of things. Here he's blowing out of the water their standards and definitions for what love is. And he's essentially saying, um, you've, you've heard before that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, and that's essentially what we still do to this day. We love people 
that are kind to us and that are friends with us. And if, and if we have enemies, we don't love them. In fact, we express something quite, quite opposite to them, especially in the era that we live in now. Um, expressing love to your enemies is not at all the norm. In fact, it's shocking when someone publicly um, expresses love for their enemies. We, uh, we talked a few episodes ago about uh, Ellen DeGeneres, who was uh, caught at the Dallas Cowboys football game in a photograph uh, laughing, sitting next to George Bush, and it got a tremendous amount of criticism from people who thought Ellen DeGeneres should never be sitting next to someone like George Bush, much less enjoying him. And Ellen came on her show the Monday following and directly addressed what happened and essentially said, I think you got it wrong. I, I don't think you heard me right when I say over and over again, be kind to people. She said, I mean, be kind to all people. And then she basically said, no, I don't agree with everything that George Bush is about, but he's my friend. Um, so she was saying something that went viral and got huge attention in national media. Why? Because she was apparently, oh my gosh, loving an enemy. <laughs> so Jesus here is saying, this is what you think love is, but it really isn't that. He says, if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you'll be acting like you're actually children of your father. And then he goes on to say, well, this is what my father does. He gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and unjust. He says, you know, I give basic necessities. I, I enclose everyone, no matter whether they're enemies of me or not, with basic love. And then he says, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you only love those who love you, then how is that any different than someone who doesn't believe in me? So if we love because we're loved— then how does that make us any different from those who don't honor, worship, or even carry the Spirit of Jesus in them? So it's so important that we not diminish the real Jesus, because when we do that, we diminish our definition of love. So in the Jesus-centered life, I include this story that a youth pastor friend of mine told me that I thought was stunning and a perfect description of what this is like. So this story will help us also to broaden our definition out from just loving your enemies to understanding what the point Jesus was really trying to make. He was trying to describe what his kind of love looks like, not just love that's expressed to enemies, but love that's expressed to everyone, but it has that same spirit of loving your enemies in it. So my friend told me this story, and I thought, oh, that's a perfect description of what Jesus was trying to talk about. So here, I'll just read this right out of the book. Here's what my friend wrote to me. We have a special needs student who's pretty high-functioning. She kind of just hangs out by herself at youth group. But we have a really popular girl. She's the homecoming queen who has befriended her. She picks this girl up and takes her out for pizza and so on. Well, this Sunday, as we wrapped up, the special need girl's Mom came into our room to thank the other girls for befriending her daughter. She wanted to say that it meant a lot to both her and her daughter. Well, the homecoming queen looked her dead in the eyes and said, Why wouldn't I? She's an awesome girl, and God loves her just as much as me. And the youth pastor says, I lost it. <laughs> and I can, I can imagine that moment because what you're hearing coming out of her mouth is the definition of love that Jesus was trying to bring across. Jesus' love is a love that never lies about what, what we might call in the Stockdale paradox, the brutal facts of our current reality. 
Now, Stockdale paradox comes from Jim Stockdale. We've talked about this on the podcast before. He was the highest-ranking officer imprisoned during the Vietnam War, and he was for eight years in the Hanoi Hilton, tortured off and on all those eight years, and uh, was treated so badly he could barely walk when he was finally released at the end of those eight years. And when others asked how he survived such a vicious and torturous season of his life and then went on to be a healthy, productive person in life, he basically said the key to it is embracing and looking with a clear eye at your brutal reality, the reality just as it really is, without laying down your prevailing hope that you will prevail in the end. So it's this tension between looking brutal reality right in the eye and not uh, shying away from describing it as it actually is, while still holding on to hope. And so Jesus' love is that kind of mix. It looks at reality as it really is, but holds on to the prevailing hope, the hope that redemption and beauty are lurking there. So in this story, this homecoming queen is not making believe that the girl she's befriended is sort of unaffected by her special needs. She's, she's not making believe that this girl is something other than she is. She's simply loving her friend for who she is, and not a romanticized version of her either. She's not romanticizing her as a special needs girl. She's actually trying to say to the mother, well, I like her for just who she is. She is like lots of my friends. She's no different. I, it doesn't mean I don't recognize her differences. She probably recognizes the differences in her other friends, too. But she loves her just the way she is. And when she says this, when she says, why wouldn't I love her to the mom, she's also very gently exposing the premise of her mother's thank yous. Uh, so the mother is thinking in a subtle way that others are befriending her daughter because they pity her on some level. And that's why she feels the need to thank them for reaching out to her daughter, um, who whose special needs would normally, you know, people would not normally befriend her, is what she's implying. And but the girls, you know, right back in her face, dead in the eye, looks that says, "Hey, look, there's no pity here. She's my awesome friend. That's who she is to me." So there is something about the the uh, the engine of love behind this encounter that reminds me exactly what Jesus was trying to say about loving our enemies. So if we get back to the main thing here, which is Jesus doesn't merely point the way to love or give us an example of what true love is, he is love itself. And so love, um, love himself is its true definition. So when we slow down and pay better attention to Jesus, we let his definition of love infect us. We start, to, we, we start to embrace what Chesterton said, which is, if we meet the Jesus of the Gospels, we must redefine what love is or you won't be able to stand him. The preface, the, pre the preamble, the prerequisite for all this is, if you meet the Jesus of the Gospels. And this is the key to everything. We have to re-meet the Jesus of the Gospels if we're going to understand what love really means. We have to slow down and let him teach us again by his words and by his actions what love looks like. And just like in our last episode when we said, 
whatever Jesus says and does is the truth because he embodies the truth, we say whatever Jesus says and does is what love looks like because he embodies love. When we do this, it blows apart our puny little versions of what love really is. So if we extract from what we can see in Jesus what love really is, uh, I, I plucked out a few um, uh, sort of uh, takeaways or insights into how Jesus behaves and turn them into, well, this is what love looks like then. So here's a few examples. Love, then, in its true definition, em embodied by Jesus, does not put a positive spin on the brutal realities of others. So uh, instead, real love acknowledges those brutal realities, and in the book I, I uh, give a kind of a metaphoric example. If you think about a, a flower that has weeds growing up around it, when you look at that, you see the weeds, but you also see the flower. You see the beauty of that flower, and you, your, your vision, your hope for that flower is that the, those weeds would be plucked up so that they wouldn't be taking away the life of that flower any longer or obscuring its beauty. So we see the brutal realities. We don't say, oh, there's no weeds. I only see a flower there. No, we, we see what the, what the weeds really are, but we look past those weeds to the flower, to the person's intrinsic beauty. So when we love someone, we're not spinning the brutal reality in front of us. In fact, we're sometimes naming that brutal reality. But we are holding, again, as in the Stockdale Paradox, we are holding on to, the, we're, we're acknowledging the brutal reality, but we are committed and determined to live out our prevailing hope with that person. Their beauty is our reality. We don't negate the weeds, we just focus on the beauty that those weeds are trying to obscure. That's what we want to be free from captivity. Those weeds represent the captivity of the flower. We want them to go away. We want them to be pulled up. We want them to stop obscuring the beauty of that flower. So we may acknowledge the weeds, but we pay peculiar attention to the beauty of the flower. We reflect back to the flower its real intrinsic beauty. So the second thing that we see in the way Jesus speaks and acts is that love offers the other whatever it needs to move into a greater life and freedom. Meaning, uh, Jesus' intent, we know this from how he proclaimed the, the purpose of his ministry, Jesus' intent, as we've said many times, to set captives free. Um, he quotes Isaiah when he adopts this mission statement, that I have come to set captives free. So always and everywhere, his, his primary intent in his love is to set us free from whatever captivity we're in. So for some, that might mean like watering the plant with compassion and generosity and perseverance and focused attention. If the plant is parched and dying, it needs nurturing. It needs watering. It needs propping up and compassion and generous attention. It needs all of those things to survive if that's what the plant needs. But for other plants, it might mean pruning the branches that are choking off that plant's growth. By the way, it's a lot less emotionally draining to water a plant than to prune one. <laughs> and, and it's a lot riskier to prune a plant than to water one. Now, you can overwater a plant. You can give it 
more than it needs, and that can choke off its growth as well. We can't just shower people with an overabundance of you know, compassion, generosity, perseverance, and focused attention, uh, an overabundance of that. We know from the metaphor of how plants grow, it can flood the plant with too much. Um, but that's not nearly as risky as setting out to love others by pruning. Pruning is risky because you might cut something that you shouldn't have cut, right? But pruning is a necessary aspect of Jesus' love. He is always pruning us, and it hurts. It's painful. We wonder sometimes if he really realizes the difference between a branch that needs to be pruned and one that doesn't. Like, really, Jesus? You took that away? Maybe you don't understand what pruning looks like, Jesus. That's because it hurts. If the plant is alive, there is not a single snip or cut that doesn't hurt. All of them will feel unnecessary to the plant who's being pruned. So pruning is selective, it's restrained, and it's aware that the plant is going to feel the pain of the cut. Selective and restrained, which requires wisdom. But as we get closer to Jesus, we get his wisdom. We get his fruits. The fruits of the Spirit are the fruits of Jesus in us. As these fruits develop in us, we gain his ability to be selective and restrained as we're pruning. This simply means that sometimes the way that we relate to other people is going to feel hard to them, maybe even painful, because we know that the only path forward to loving them is going to involve pain. Now, I know from my own life, I have so many examples of people in my life who've had the guts to do something that caused me pain for the purpose of pruning, not just random sin <laughs> that they visited upon me that was hurtful, but their intent was to, they paid attention to me enough to notice something that needed pruning in me, and then they took a risk. They took a shot at speaking it out. Um, I've, I've, uh, the, the one that just pops into my head right now is, uh, as I've mentioned in several of my books, and probably on the podcast before, is when I was involved in a men's group uh, fairly early on in my marriage, in the first 10 years of my marriage, a men's group that was run by a guy who was an expert at pruning. <laughs> and uh, he was a counselor, but he was also uh, a ferocious man, I guess is the best way to say it. He intended to help men come out of their captivity and into freedom. And one way he went about that is sort of bluntly and simply reflecting back how he was experiencing you as he, as he related to you in this group. And there were many times where I, I just remember his gaze looking at me, and he would say something simple and blunt about how he was experiencing me, and oh, did it hurt. It was a good hurt. There's a difference between a good hurt and a bad hurt. A good hurt, you feel it when you, you know that that person has just pointed out something that's true that you don't want to admit, and that by pointing it out, he's also expressing care for you, that he's having the courage to say what's true about you and how you're being experienced. Of course, it throws you into a tailspin, but this is where the growth comes from then. Then you have to grapple with something that you had refused to grapple with so far. So pruning is a necessary aspect of Jesus' love, and as we grow close to him, we also live that out in the people around us. With fueled by the wisdom of the Spirit, 
as we are selective and restrained. A third way that describes the kind of love that Jesus exemplified is that it's a love that gives not because the receiver of that love deserves the gift. So Jesus' love is always transformational. So when you give love to someone who deserves it, that may or may not be transformational in their life. But if you give love to someone who doesn't deserve it, who is your enemy, at least in the moment, then that kind of love can be transformational. It can change everything for a person. There are so many stories in our culture of people who are loved against all odds. So many people in ministry today who were on trajectories that were anything but toward ministry. And if you track back their story to find out, well, what was the tipping point? How, what moved you from this, this trajectory that was far away from God to now being in ministry leadership, you'll almost always find the story of someone who loved them when they didn't deserve to be loved. Someone whose love was so radical that they embraced them when there was no reason to embrace them. The person had no answer for why they were being loved in this way. That is what transformational love looks like. So this is really narrowing down in this description and definition of love, that love like this is defined and redefined by grace. And grace is, by definition, undeserved, right? So it's the undeserved love that we offer others that is truly, remarkably transformational. Number four, the fourth way, and again, these are just my condensations or my extractions of what I see in Jesus. There's many more that we could keep going on and on about, but I've just chosen the four that um, I wrote about in the Jesus-centered life to focus on today. So this last one, number four, is that the Jesus kind of love is able to love enemies because it is not transactional. Oh, I can't, I can't highlight this enough. Transactional love means if you give, then I'll give. You heard this definition, by the way, in some of the responses that people gave on the, in the video that I played for you when they were asked what love is. It's essentially, well, it's reciprocal. Love is reciprocal. It, if I give love, I expect to also be received in love, and that's actually not the true definition of love. If your definition is, is rooted in Jesus, transactional love isn't really love. So and other forms of transactional love are, if you deserve to be loved, then I will love you. If then. If there's any if then in love, then it's not really the Jesus kind of love that he's describing. Or another way of, that you can hear when it's a transactional kind of love is, if you treat me badly, then I will stop loving you. Now, there are limits to that, obviously. Love is not wimpy. Love is, love is not victimhood. Love does not simply accept whatever terrible treatment others give it, because that's actually not loving the one who is abusing you. If there's a person in your life who's abusing you, then they're in desperate need of pruning, and that means pain. And that pain may be withdrawing from relationship with that person, because there's no way they will be able to deal with their sinful expression of in relating to you apart from the pain of you withdrawing from them. So that's definitely true. Love means loving your enemies, and when your enemy is hurting you, sometimes that means they need to experience pain in order to find a way out of their destructive cycle. So when I say that one form of transactional love is, if you treat me badly, then I'll stop loving you, 
that does not include abusive behavior. If our standard is, hey, as long as you keep coming through for me, as long as you never make a mistake, as long as um, uh, you never have to say you're sorry to me, then that's love. Well, that's a lie. It's just not true. Jesus' love is a differentiated force. What I mean by that is that Jesus' love loves because its source is always the headwaters of love. Differentiated force means that it's not dependent on the beloved's response to the love. It's not loving only because of what it gets in return. It's not loving because the person who is loved responds well to it. Love is differentiated as its own thing. It is a, a love that exists outside of its connection to the response. In a way, you could say Jesus' kind of love is not parasitic. It's not feeding off of something else. It doesn't require something of the other. And this was an area for me in, in my life and my long marriage. We're coming up on 30 years, Bev and I, that this aspect of love that demanded something of the other or required something of the other was part of the dysfunction that I brought into our marriage. And it, it's part of uh, how I sort of made sense of my crazy-making world growing up that in subtle ways that my wife could um, not always put words to but could always feel, in subtle ways I would love her with an underlying demand for something in return. And she could feel the weight of it sometimes. Sometimes it would just build up and she would sort of, it would bubble over in her. And she would finally say, the kind of way you're loving me makes me feel weighted down and oppressed. And early on in our marriage, I would express just absolute confusion about what she was talking about. I had no idea. But the deeper in we got and the more uh, self-reflective, and I, I went to counseling, uh, the deeper I got to Jesus, I, it began to dawn on me what she was saying, that a Jesus kind of love that is not transactional does not require something from the other person. It does not weigh them down with your expectations. And I, without even knowing it, that's how I had lived. Part of the way I loved my wife is I would burden, overburden her with expectations about how what she needed to do in return. And when I began to slowly move out of that, you know, kind of death cycle, what I did was give her more and more freedom to not have to respond, to, that there was no expectation on her side. And it gives freedom. It releases people from captivity when you love in a differentiated way, and Jesus certainly did that. So just to close off here, it's good to remember something we've talked about in the past on the podcast. It's, it's something I call the progression. My friend Ned Erickson uh, shared this with me probably 20 years ago now. It just upended my world when he shared this. Uh, the story about this is that uh, I was about to fill in and preach for the first time at the church that I would later become a longtime leader in, but I was asked to fill in for the pastor for the first time, and they paired me up with a fill-in worship leader. It must have been one of those days where the entire staff took off, but um, Ned was the fill-in worship leader, and we struck up an immediate close friendship. I really loved his heart. We had a kindred spirit relationship right from the beginning, and after that very first meeting, he looked at me with this kind of this twinkle in his eye, and he said, you know, Rick, I want to share with you a kind of a recipe or a formula for what I think the Christian life, the, our life with Jesus really is. And I said, oh my gosh, Ned, I hate recipes and formulas. I can't believe after all of this, you're about to give me a formula for something. 
And he said, well, I guess it's not really a formula. It's more like a progression. And then what he said just upended me. So here is the progression. Get to know Jesus well, because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to follow him. And the more you follow him, the more you'll become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. Oh, I just love that last line. The more we become like Jesus, the more we become our unique and distinct self. But it all starts with that first line, get to know Jesus well. Everything happens because we do that. And it sets in, in motion a chain of events that as we know him more, we love him more. And as we love him more, we want to follow him more. As we follow him more, we, want, we become more like him. And yes, we become more like ourselves. We draw near to Jesus, and he infects us. And we begin to receive his love when it seems crazy to call it that. Like when you're getting pruned, it seems crazy to call that love, but we experience it as love. And we're more able to receive it as love as we get closer to him. And it's really even hard to explain to others why we feel loved in those moments. They, From the outside looking in, it looks like, that doesn't look like love to me, but we experience it internally as Jesus loving us. And the closer we get to him, the more we're able to receive it in that way. And we begin to offer others a love that doesn't fit the popular definitions. It's a love that has a transforming impact in their lives, drawing them out of captivity and into freedom. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out the Jesus-Centered Bible and, going fast, those Jesus-Centered planners before they're all gone. So just head on over to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're looking for Season 4, Episode 43. Or just go to Group.com and search for the Jesus-Centered Planner or the Jesus-Centered Bible or the Jesus-Centered Anything. You have a bunch of things that can be companions to you now in your journey through the holidays toward our celebration of the birth of Jesus. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.